afternoon and good evening everyone and welcome back to the tinder bundle where believers get together to kindle their flame of faith i'm your host the wandering avad and today we are getting into that bible study we were beginning i know i sent out the preliminaries already or the before we begin and we're going to be looking at reading the bible in its historical context now, this is another segment that we'll be finding on the Tinder Bundle podcasts. This will go along with our, the, we have our kit series going on, but we also have this wonderful Bible study going on. So before we go any further, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Let us bow our hearts. Great and heavenly God, Lord, we thank you for everything that you do and all that you will continue to do in our life. Please, Lord, guide our minds as we open the scriptures so that we may get closer to you and understand more of the lives we read about. We pray these words in no other name but the mighty name of Yeshua, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. And blessings, my friends, blessings. So, before we begin, let us remember we're doing this uh, study to help people get into the historical context of the biblical characters and the narrative. That being said, I want you guys to know at first, we'll be primarily using the King James Version, a Revised Standard Version, Orthodox Jewish Bible, Complete Jewish Bible, as well as a Hebrew Bible. Uh, I do believe uh, getting into the original language is one of the best ways to really tap into what any translation is trying to do because sometimes the translators uh, are adapting or applying certain things that maybe the verse didn't exactly intend. I'm not saying this will disrupt the main focus of what the scripture is trying to say, but I believe, for example, when you compare the Greek to the Hebrew, there are different philosophies attached to the languages. So therefore, it's good to tap into these words to understand the depths of what these original authors may have meant. Now, for those who would like to be able to follow along, and if you're uh, listening to this on the podcast, some great resources that you guys can use to help you through this study that are free online uh, using Bible Gateway or Bible Hub, as well as a U version for the apps on like your phone or tablet. Now, Bible Gateway will give you a lot of commentaries as well as uh, different versions of the Bible and such. Uh, Bible Hub will give you commentaries. It will also give you parallel readings. It will give you transliterations. It will give you the Hebrew and the Greek. It also comes with its own concordance. So it's a very resourceful tool once you learn how to navigate through them. So as we continue. So we'll be following a method of exegesis to read the scriptures here. And I, I wanted to make that point out because a lot of people sometimes read the scriptures and do eisegesis. Now, within eisegesis, you are looking into the text. You're making the text say something it never tried to say to begin with. But with exegesis, we are pulling, exo, we are pulling out of the text. And in this case, we'll be looking at 
the historical, grammatical, political uh, reference points, as well as the context of the first audience, who this was actually written to. All these kind of things will help us navigate exactly what's going on in these stories. And now and then we will allude to something called pardes. Now, pardes is it's a Jewish method of interpretation, and it's actually an acronym. The P stands for Peshat, which is like the surface. The straight meaning, Remez, uh, is it's like a hint. It's alluding to something bigger. Then there's the Daresh, which is where you begin to seek for other things to help amplify what is actually being meant in the passage. And then there's the Sod. And the sword is the secret. It's the mystery. It's when you're getting into the mysticalness of the writing. So another thing that we want to set on the onset is we will be ascribing to the older traditions that Moshe, the one we call Moses, is the one who wrote the Torah. We will not be following the well heathen Wellhausen hypothesis, also known as the JEPD theory, which is more or less that the Torah is a compilation put together and that Moses was not the exact uh, writer. We'll follow the traditional view here. And as we go throughout the writings, it is going to make sense later why I subscribe to the older traditional views. Let us remember the Bible within itself is not just one big book. It is a biblios. It is a codex. It is 66 different books with 40 plus different authors. And we today are beginning with the written Torah. Why do I say the written Torah? It's because we will not be uh, spending a lot of time emphasizing on the oral Torah. But we may tap into it now and then just to help our perspectives. Also, now and then, we may touch into some pseudopigraphs, such as uh, the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, and Jasher. Those really contribute a lot to the mindset and perspective of how the Genesis story works. And now that we got that all laid out, let us set the stage and open the book. Let me have a little sip of this coffee. Mm. So, the aim or the beginning of this is we're starting at Genesis 1. And we're going to be moving from Genesis 1. Hopefully, we'll get through verses 1 and 2. The aim is to get to at least verses 5. But here's the backdrop. We got to actually set the stage, which a lot of people don't really do. Set the stage of why a book would have began the way it did and why is it being written. Now, in a complete summation of it, you could simply say the Holy Bible, the scriptures is simply written to be a testimony of God, the creator of the universe's interaction with his creation and how he chooses to try and redeem it from a fallen state. But putting that aside, let us focus on 
Genesis, the Torah at this moment, this beginning part. The backdrop is, look at this, this book is considered to be written roughly around 1312 BC. Now, within this time period of history, and within the geographical context of where they are, they are coming out of Egypt, out of what was called the New Kingdom era, what we now call the New Kingdom era of Egypt, and they are going off into the wilderness, out into Sinai, getting ready to go towards what they will be calling the Promised Land. So it's within this little tiny piece of land that connects Africa to Asia Minor and to uh, little remnants of Europe. So it's like this little connecting piece of land. That is where they're entering in. Uh, if I had visuals, I'd be able to post this up on a map. But if you ever get a chance, take a look at what the Fertile Crescent looks like, where the Middle East is, where Jerusalem is. It's a tiny piece of land that is fought over that it's just very unique because it's a connector. It's a trade route, but at the same time, it's not super resourceful. But God had his reasons why he chose that land. Let's get back to the study, though. Um, what we're having here is Egypt is in the era of the new kingdom. This is like Egypt in its glory. Now, the new kingdom territory um let me stop saying um we're talking to the right of uh their territory at this time you've got remnants of canaan still in there you have beyond the red sea you have arabia but then also if you're moving upwards in arabia you have the full of mesopotamia assyria is above arabia and then you also have where we now call turkey what is called the hittite empire and you also have syria right below the hittite empire and a little further up we're getting into the macedons we're getting into where the greece is and to the left of egypt's empire would be Libya. And then down below you have Punt. Now, here's the thing. By this time in history, Egypt has already conquered Nubia. So they've got Kush absorbed into their empire. Now, what this really does to help us out is we begin to see Egypt within itself is conquering so many different places, so it is be a very diverse culture. A lot of times we run into this trap of thinking, when we think of ancient cultures, it's just one type of people, one colored people, or whatnot. But there was a lot of intermingling, a lot of uh, slave trading going on, as well as the beauty here, though, was slave trading was done for a different reason. And we're going to get into that into the future. What we're trying to point out here is the Egyptian empire is a multicultured or a multicolored looking group. It is not the way we like to depict it as in predominantly white or black or anything like that. It is a group that so many people can go into and disappear in. So that is literally how the Egyptian empire is looking. They're surrounded by 
great kingdoms and all that, but they were the greatest at this point. They were building the most magnificent structures and their science and technology was above, far above many other people. Yes, during this time also, they did have writing. They had a script that was regularly read, but then they also had the glyphs, what we would call the hieroglyphs, that were to put etchings and marks on, whether it's obsolete pyramids, uh, towers and stuff to record history. So this is what Egypt is looking like. We're talking Egypt is the first world at that point. It is a beautiful place to live. You are having so much diversity of food and you're getting textiles. So you're getting all sorts of different fabrics. You're seeing what the world in its highest state was looking like. You would come to Egypt. Now, the time period that they're saying with when the book of Genesis was written and when the Exodus took place and the Exodus, for those who may not know, is when Israel leaves Egypt in its freedom. They believe this would be during the time of Pharaoh Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great. But there are some scholars who speculate that it was really during Ramses III, which is interesting because it's Ramses III that closes the new era and, and helps begin to initiate the downfall or the fall of Egypt. But some people want to push it even further back to Tutmos III, who was also known as Tutmos the Great Conqueror, who he was one who built Egypt up like crazy and put in so many great monuments. So now what you have is this great magnificent city and Moses who has who was raised within this city later flees out of fear for his own life because of he's killing another Egyptian. But while he runs in the desert he meets God and at the foot of a mountain by a burning bush, he meets God. God says, this is my holy ground, and I'm sending you on a mission. So Moshe is, accepts the mission after a little discussion, a couple of miracles, and he heads out into Egypt to say, free the people. So as he goes, after a tussle, a whole bunch of stuff begin to happen. Moses finally gets the okay you may leave and he brings the children of Israel out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea and heading towards the mountain on Sinai where Moses first met God and he was bringing Israel out there to meet their God so why is this a significance well, significant. The first thing we've got to remember is this is 400 years of slavery, 400 plus years. They went in there. They went into Egypt as a family. And we're going to get into this later in the game. But just to give you the background picture, they went in as a family and they come out as a nation. They've spent 400 years and they've been multiplying like crazy. Here's the thing, though, when you spent something like 400 years into a place, it is very easy to begin to lose your identity. So Israel 
has begun to assimilate themselves into the Egyptian culture. They are losing their identity of who they were. What did their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what did, how did they want them to live? Everything has began to change. Their laws and customs are changing to the Egyptian laws and customs. Their language and culture has been mixed up into this Egyptian lifestyle. I'm sure if we wanted to relate this to any of us, we could think about when we have parents or grandparents who came from another country and immigrated into a new country. And then you have kids and then they have kids. There comes a point where those children, the grandparents are going to see those children live by a different lifestyle, a different culture, a different standard than what they used to live in their native land. Well, this is the same kind of thing that's happening here with the Israelites. Their language, they're no longer speaking just simple Hebrew. And the funniest thing is, even when Israel was, when you had just the patriots going at it, as in Abraham, Isaac and Yaakov, when Yaakov has his 12 tribes, his 12 children that slowly begin to develop these 12 tribes, the language doesn't stay precisely the same. And we see this in scripture. We're going to touch on it when we get there. But what we see is, depending on the area where they went, even neighboring uh, civilians, neighboring cultures and stuff, influence the language so the hebrew wasn't one set hebrew and this still stands today for example you have hebrew spoken differently amongst the ashkenazis versus the sephardics versus the lemba jews versus the yemenites and so on the language itself adapts where it goes and we see this later showing up within the scriptures himself so what we're having happening here is Israelites are speaking, yes, Hebrew. They're probably speaking some form of Aramaic as well or some kind of Phoenician. It was a Semitic language closer to a Canaanite tongue, as well as they're speaking their Egyptian language. Now, what begins to happen here is Moses has to take this group, this assimilated group of Israelites, on a journey out of Egypt so they can begin to worship the one true God their forefathers always worshipped. So they're taking this journey to Mount Sinai. And it is on this journey from Mount Sinai as well as throughout the wilderness going towards the promised land that God tells them about which, funny enough, the promised land turns out to be the land of their forefathers, but we'll get to that as well. What we have is, it is during this journey, the Torah is developed. It is upon when they get past the Red Sea and make it to Mount Sinai, and when Moshe goes up to meet God on the mountain, God begins to express and give him the revelation of the Torah. Now, on top of this, the rest of the Torah is also written during the journeys within the wilderness. So this is how the Torah is developed. Israel has somewhat lost its identity, but it never lost its hope. So the Torah is made 
through Moshe to reestablish the Hebrew identity as a chosen people. They come from the line of a man who was chosen and a promise was given to, which is who they call Abram. And is Torah is also written to develop a new culture for a freed people, the culture that God would desire them to live by. You see, we look at the Bible and stuff as just this book. What we don't realize, it's the history of the culture of a people over a long period of time. And then it also shows you how this culture, this lifestyle of holiness, how it stretched forwards to everyone. So, the first few chapters, bringing this right back to where our study begins, the first few chapters of the Torah is developed to combat Egyptian and the surrounding nations' theology and cosmology. Excuse me. Mm, tasty. Oh, and for those uh, who are curious what exactly is cosmology, cosmology is the origins or evolution, the beginnings of the creation of any universe. So, let us open up the word. Now, reading from the King James, that King James sense I have a very poetic sound to it. It is spoken in a very unique form of English. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now here are the first five verses. Uh, depending on how time is moving, I don't know if we'll make it all the way uh, to verse five. But let's begin to start digging in. Now, of course, that is the King James Version. And now we are going to be reading more from the Hebrew itself. I'll also accompany this, uh, probably read from here, let me see, oh, uh, this uh, OJB, the Orthodox Jewish Bible. All right. So, what we see, this first verse, Bereshit barat Elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, Elohim, Elohim created Hashamayim, heavens, and Haaretz, earth. Now this here, some later scholars have began to attribute is a paragraph within itself. It's almost a summary statement of the whole entire book within itself. I once did a Q&A about what is the most important verse of the Bible. And this was the verse I chose because if you do not believe this star point, the rest of the book will fall apart. 
who was the creator. See, right here, what Moshe is doing is talking to the children of Israel and letting them know directly there is Elohim. Now, Elohim is a very tricky word because Elohim is a plural word. Uh, whenever I'll teach you a little Hebrew here, whenever you see this I am ending, like Elohim, Cherubim, or it's actually the Cherubim, or Seraphim, whenever you see that Im at the end, you even heard it when I said heavens, Hashamayim. Now, funny enough, we say heavens, but it's really heaven. There are some words that are plural and singular at the same time. Elohim is one of those words. Now, this has led to so many debates because for Christians, Elohim is also an allusion towards the Trinity or the Trinitarian uh, doctrine and it's and the Trinity's involvement in creation. But for our Jewish brothers and sisters, they would say, no, Elohim is a majesty in plurality. So the same way how the king and queen were to say we, even though she's speaking for herself or he is speaking for himself, Elohim is calling a one God by a plurality because of his greatness. So what we got here then is Elohim. Now let us take a little look at this word Elohim. Elohim also means more than God. The singular of Elohim is El or Eloah, which is God. But Elohim can mean the one true God, and there is a way to distinctly tell when Elohim is referring to the one true God. It can also mean gods, as in lowercase g's. It can mean spiritual beings or exalted men, men who have reached a higher level. And we've seen this throughout the scripture where the word is used to mean different things. When referring to the one true God or the creator, Elohim when it's supposed to be considered in a singular form, is always followed by a singular verb. Just the same way how we have pluralities with our verbs that move with the noun, same thing happens in Hebrew. So right here, though, Elohim, even though that is plural, bara is a singular parse. So we know that Elohim here is singular. So what we have here now is, as, as we dig a little deeper, first off, in the beginning, the, uh, in the Hebrew we say Bereshit, which is coming from Rosh. Rosh is the head of, the pinnacle, the, it's the beginning, the star point. Now, Bereshit is like from the, or within. So what we're looking at is, within the point where everything is beginning, where everything is starting when looking at this world, this universe that they live in. So their creation 
in the start of it, there was God. And this God came in and created everything we will see in the space above us, the Hashamayim, the heaven, the skies, the everything that is above us. And this is why it is sometimes termed the heavens, because we later learned the Hebrews believed in three heavens. There is a heaven as the sky, the heaven above the dome of water, and then the heavens where God himself resides. And then you have Ha'aretz, the earth, the ground, the dirt, the land that they sit on. They did not see the word, the earth, the way we see it in modern terms as this big globe. But what they seen was this flat plain filled with some hills, some bodies of water, and that was their earth. So also in this verse, another thing that we can recognize is Moshe is bringing out the idea of the concepts of a lot of the things they believed in all began with Elohim. What do I mean? He's showing that in the beginning. So time itself was beginning with Elohim. Elohim moves into where time will take place. So Elohim is existing outside of time. Elohim is the master of time because he creates time. This will be very unique when we get to day seven because we will find out Elohim has a property in which he moves in when it came to the creation. We also see Moshe explaining to them he created space. So the Hashamayim, everything that's engulfed within these skies and stuff that sit within this realm were created by him. And this space is what time will travel through or the space travels because there is time. And then lastly, he's also expressing Haaretz, the matter, the earth. Every element that is created comes through Elohim. Not only that, what we'll begin to see is as we go through, he creates time, space, and matter all to have a purpose. And the only way it can be good in the sight of creation is when time, space, and matter has purpose. So, I seem to love this word so. God is the author of everything we see. And this is what Moshe was trying to first ignite the reader of the Torah when they heard it and those who could read would read it. They would see he was the beginning. Now, as we move towards verse 2, talks about and the earth and the earth was tohu vavohu this is what we translate as in form void this is an emptiness this is a muddle this is like a mess of things if um we were to make a physical example of this 
if you were to go into an office and tear everything apart, disorganize it and throw it all out of order, make it a complete mess. Or, for example, say you have a cup of water and then all of a sudden you start throwing oil in there and dirt and all sorts of trash and it all begins to seep together and make this muddle, this muck of itself. This is what tohu vavohu is. It's a formlessness. It has no, no meaning, no substance to it. It's just a mess. So he opens up with saying that the earth that was mentioned in verse 1 was a mess at this point, even though it was created. And this is how he's letting you know, within the space, God created everything in there. But now we're going to start working on what he did to organize what he created. So he steps into this and he says, and darkness Choshech, Choshech is like this deep obscurity, darkness. It's almost like the darkness you can feel coming upon you. This darkness is upon the face of the deep, the Tahom. This deep they're speaking about is a deepness, a sea, an abyss. So what we're talking about is this formless, voidless mess of darkness, obscurity, all the elements have been, they're, they're all stretched apart. And this seems like it's an endless deepness being looked upon. Then he follows with, and now in Hebrew it says, the Ruch Elohim was hovering on the face of the waters. What what we're seeing here, it, this word, Ruach Elohim, some translations, as we read in the King James, the King James would neatly say, oh, we're talking about the Spirit of God because the word Ruach can mean many things. It can mean breath. It can mean spirit. It can mean the wind. But when we look at it, what Moshe is trying to do is show them Elohim is the author of everything and the spirit was always considered the essence of something. So, when he's looking in, he's letting them know the essence, the spirit of Elohim. It's not just that he breathed over there or it's a wind blowing about. No, this is about the spirit of God in motion because what we are going to begin to soon see is God himself can move throughout things while still be sitting upon his throne, separated, even though he is intimately involved. This is God, after all, who can do anything. So, Moshe says that the Ruach Elohim is hovering over the faces of the water. The faces of what water? Remember, this water is what is holding the earth that is in Tohu Vavohu, 
which is filled with choshek, this darkness. And within this water, it is tom, it's deep mess. It is just chaos. It's chaos. And so Moshe is letting them know, our God, our Elohim, is the one who comes upon the face of the water and begins to do anything. So why would this be important for Israel reading these and hearing these words as they're moving out of Egypt? Well, this is what makes us have to tap into ancient Mesopotamian cultures. So, when we look at the Babylonian creation story, Mesopotamian creation stories, when we even look at Greek uh, creation stories, we look at the Egyptian creation stories, we find a significant, uh, a very common thing, which is creation or life always begins through water. Water is the symbol of life and where it begins. Water, and funny enough, still to this day, if you've ever watched how cities are populated, whenever they find new land, it always starts with beginning the life, the populace, the cities, the villages, wherever it may be, hamlets or whatnot, close by the water and then stretch outward. Water, till this day, has always been a significant thing to producing life. Well, it's the same thing here. The Mesopotamians, the ancient world, believe water is where it all started. But to bring this closer to home of why this verse was even stronger for the Israelites leaving Egypt. Remember, they are slowly being trying to extract the Egyptian culture out of them and bring them into their new Hebraic culture. The Egyptian creation story would state that this prime now. Let me side note here. There are actually five different creation stories for Egypt, all depending on where you are. But they all have great similarities towards what I'm about to say. The, there is a primordial abyss of water, which is personified into their god, Nun. Now, Nun or Nu, in some cases, Nut, depends on where you are, how it's pronounced and who you're reading. Nun is the one who gives birth to all the other gods in Egypt. It's within that primordial mess, that abyss of water that they call Nun, that they say he began to bring forth life. But look at this here. What Moshe is letting them see is even if you believed in that primordial mist being Nun, the spirit of Elohim, Ruach Elohim hovers above it. It is still separate from it and more dominant than it because it is not created from it. It is above it and it is about to organize it. This water that the Ruach Elohim was hovering over was a watery mess of all creation. And this verse here is what Moshe is using to initiate the thought that our God was above and bigger than the God of Egypt who created everything. And what we are going to find as we continue to go through 
is every day of creation, though it begins to express how uh, how Elohim created the world, it also knocks against the gods of Egypt that the Israelites began to believe or subscribe to while they were in Egypt. Let's see if we can tackle verse 3. And Elohim said, Let there be light, or... And there was light. Elohim said. Elohim spoke. You know, in Tehillim, in Psalm 36, I mean 33 verse 6, it says, By the Devar Hashem, by the word of God, was Shemaim made, were the heavens made, and all the Tzvah, the hosts of them, by the Ruach, by the Spirit by the breath oh you know what time is not going to let us tackle this so this is where we're going to stop here and we're going to continue this next week Elohim said let there be light and there was light we are now going to begin to enter the world of Moshe showing Israel how Elohim, our great God, would go into the greatest God, the mother of all gods, this sea primordial Nun, and destroy it by organizing this water into what he desired it to be. So, my friends, that is what we're going to tackle as we come back to this Bible study. We've been here for a considerable amount of time. And so we'll connect back next week as we start verse 3 in Genesis 1, looking at creation and how and what it meant to the natural readers and what it meant for Moshe to be writing this to Israel. So my friends, I'm so happy we're beginning this journey. I'm excited. There's so much to learn, so much to share. And I pray that God will continue to bless each and every one of us as we grow together in the word of God. So my friends, before we have a closing word of prayer, I want to thank you all for joining us today. And we pray that you are blessed by the word and the study we were into. I'm your host again, The Wandering Avad, and today's Bible study was brought to you by The Adama Project. And if you liked what you heard, please share, like, subscribe, and let's grow this channel to reach as many people with gospel as well as preparedness for this world and the life we will be living. So my friends, I want to say once again, Thank you for coming. This has been the Tinder Bundle. But let's have a word of prayer before you go. Oh, great and glorious God, we are so happy for everything you have done for us. And we thank you for all you will continue to do. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us the opportunity that we may even read into the scripture and learn of your glory. Learn of all the great things you have done and how you even came down to design and make us with a purpose, a purpose that will serve humanity with love and serve you with spirit and truth. Lord, bless us as we go about our days and let us rest in your joy and in your peace eternally. Keep our hearts clean and keep our minds focused on you and let us be helpful to the world. 
We pray these words in no other name but the mighty name of Yeshua, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Baruch Hashem. Blessings and blessings upon you all, and I hope that you all have a wonderful week until we meet again. And don't forget, check out some of the other videos uh, that will be coming. We've got uh, some more basic outdoors basics 101, as well as the next kit series is going to be released shortly, which we will be talking about our fire kits. But until then, God bless. Y'all stay safe. And remember, be fruitful, be blessed and be safe. Godspeed, my friends. Mm -hmm.